welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Today I am joined by Dr. Olga Persky, who is an honorary member of staff at UCL, currently working on a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellowship at the University of California, San Diego and Tampere University in Finland. Uh, Dr. Persky, this is uh, Dr. Persky's third time on Addiction Audio, which I think is a record and is with us today to talk about her most recent article published in Addiction titled Within Person Associations Between Psychological and Contextual Factors and Lapse Incidents in Smokers Attempting to Quit A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Ecological Momentary Assessment Studies Dr Persky, welcome again to Addiction Audio Thank you so much Rob for having me um, so before we get on to the kind of uh, the results part of this and, and the issues around smoking and, and what you found, this was a systematic review um, that looked at the results of EMA trials, which is ecological momentary assessment. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with this uh, this method, can you explain what ecological momentary assessment uh, is and what it involves? So ecological momentary assessments have been around um, for quite some decades um, and really they started off um, in uh, paper and pen form. So it was just a way of trying to uh, collect data um, at a more um, granular uh, temporal frequency than uh, had been done before to try to capture people's um, experiences in everyday life. Um, so in the beginning, uh, these used to be sort of in diary format and people would be asked maybe at a fixed time every evening, 9pm, uh, please jot down um, responses in relation uh, to questions about um, how you've been feeling, um, who you've interacted with, etc. And as technology has progressed, it's now possible to um, send out brief surveys in people's daily lives. Um, so in these studies, for example... Um, Often surveys would be sent maybe um, three or four times per day, um, asking people uh, to respond to very similar questions. It's just that the time frame would then be connected a little bit more to the prompt. So it might be, how are you feeling right now? Or how have you felt in the last hour or since the last prompt? Okay, so you get this kind of ability to track people's changed states, I suppose, throughout the course of a day. Um, and has that become easier with uh, kind of mobile phone technology and uh, and things like that? Absolutely. Um, so, of course, uh, now that smartphone use is so um, highly prevalent uh, across the globe, uh, it's now very often to, uh, or, sorry, it's now very common to use um, people's own devices. And sometimes people would be asked to download a specific app that can send out uh, these types of um, surveys. Uh, but actually now jumping ahead to the results of our review, what we found here is actually that uh, in most of the studies um, included here, uh, a lot of uh, the studies would uh, lend a device to participants. Um, so it wasn't actually that common um, sort of um, uh, back when these studies were conducted for people to use their own phones. We'll talk a little bit about um, some of your your aims and goals, I suppose, that we've discussed um, in, in different settings about kind of adaptive interventions, just in time interventions. So you can identify what's happening so that you can kind of respond with that. But with this, I was, I was particularly interested in in your uh, comments on how it could be used to test kind of almost classic or classical theories of addiction, like relapse prevention theories. Um, 
the reinforcement, uh, negative reinforcement model of addiction. You know, these theories whereby addiction is about you know, negative reinforcement or relapse prevention. And if you can track someone's uh, experience through a day, you can see what's happening in, in kind of in a way that you can't with like a study or a qualitative interview. Does this really give you that, that ability? That's right. So um, I think the, uh, a lot of our psychological theories and uh, the theories that we have in addiction science to date uh, have been based on measurements that have been taken very far apart. So we might have uh, data collected at the baseline assessment and then several weeks or even months later uh, trying to make connections between these different constructs. Um, but of course, we know uh, that behaviours uh, like addictive behaviours, um, they are dynamic and fluctuate uh, over time and in relation to different internal cues and external cues. Um, so, uh, and I should also mention that some of the theories that we do have, uh, they are uh, trying to capture these sort of uh, within the person uh, changes that happen over time. So I think relapse prevention theory in particular is one that um, uh, has also been able to already incorporate some data from, for example, ecological momentary assessment studies um, and then postulate, for example, that lapses occur uh, when encountering high risk situations, which are uh, by definition sort of context dependent um, and dynamically fluctuating over time. Um, but I think what's really, really useful um, with these ecological momentary assessment studies and then also um, probably more for future studies that can incorporate more uh, sensor data as well, is that we should progressively be able to um, um, to capture a little bit more what um, what happens to people uh, on a more momentary uh, basis. Um, and of course, as you already mentioned, not only having um, a benefit for sort of updating our theories uh, and helping us better understand and predict behaviour, but also uh, hopefully we'll be able to incorporate this into our interventions and really um, be able to pr provide more um, um, sort of context uh, dependent and uh, momentary interventions to support people to avoid lapses absolutely and and that's uh it's, it's worth going to listen to the interview that you did on um just in time adaptive interventions uh just eyes um i think a year or so ago um and that's fascinating work in and of itself um you, you mentioned there about within person um uh changes what do you mean when you refer to kind of within-person changes or association? Um, and how does that differ from studies that focus on people's motivation to use, for example? Yeah, so a lot of our um, studies uh, to date have focused, and also our theories, have focused more on uh, d explaining why people differ from one another. So... Um, also in terms of a lot of uh, diagnostic work, of course, is thinking more about uh, what, uh, what characteristics uh, can help uh, distinguish a person uh, with uh, an addiction from somebody who doesn't, for example. Uh, whereas uh, these types of studies and also associated statistical models, or also um, kind of going more into computational and mathematical modeling, what that allows us to do is to move away from looking uh, 
only at uh, between person differences, but also trying to look at um, what happens within the person over time. Um, and uh, particularly in these types of statistical models that have been applied to the data that we've reviewed here, um, would look at, for example, um, for a given person in our sample, in relation to their own mean, for example, their mean level of cravings or mean level of motivation, uh, when uh, their motivational cravings increase or drop in relation to their own kind of uh, normal uh, does that then confer a greater risk of lapse incidents? That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and just finally, before we kind of move on to the methods and some of the things that you did in this study, uh, you mentioned in the background about um, a lapse happens in in eleven minutes. And I appreciate this is this is this is from the literature, but I I thought that was one of those. It's such a compelling statistic that it can't possibly be true. Um, where where did uh, where did this come from? Yes, I th I think we should of course always um, be um, uh, a little bit sceptical when it comes to very precise estimates like that one, and particularly without providing any confidence uh, mm. around it. But I think it's still um, the reason for quoting it, and I believe this is from a um, a uh, study by um, Saul Schiffman um, and colleagues. Um, but I think what's what's very compelling about that statistic uh, is to to illustrate how rapidly these things can fluctuate over time. So also, if we go back to kind of thinking about um, maybe more traditional survey based studies, which would measure these constructs uh, weeks apart, uh, if we think that um, or well, knowing that lapses can happen very rapidly in response to uh, very rapidly increasing cravings, for example, or a cue in the environment. Uh, so, for example, uh, being uh, in a bar or restaurant where somebody would um, pick up a cigarette uh, and that that can very rapidly lead to a lapse. I think mm. that helps uh, sort of um, uh, emphasise the point that ecological momentary assessments and, and maybe also sensor data is required in order to pick up these fluctuations, these very, very rapid fluctuations. It also kind of underlines the importance or the use of, of things like just-in-time uh, adaptive interventions. You know, if, if you've got something that can happen in 11 minutes and, and you've got a weekly counselling appointment, the chances are that, that that support appointment is going to miss the 11 minutes that you need, whereas just-in-time adaptive interventions have the potential to kind of be there at that point. Absolutely. And uh, also just to, to add to that, perhaps uh, jumping ahead a little bit to kind of the results, um, but something that I've been particularly interested in trying to uh, model a bit more uh, specifically is also really thinking carefully about the causal chain of events, because mm. that very rapid um, kind of um, uh, increase in cravings leading to a lapse within 11 minutes that, uh, well, logically speaking, that would only be possible if cigarettes are uh, easily available to the person or maybe the cigarettes uh, in the environment was the thing that, in fact, caused uh, the situational craving. But, for example, um, if I'm um, at home and I am experiencing negative affect, but I don't have any cigarettes available, of course, I would have to uh, walk or drive in San Diego uh, in order to 
uh, get some cigarettes. So maybe then the uh, there is also opportunity to um, to sort of prevent the lapse from ha- from happening, depending on how easily available cigarettes are. So yeah. that's something that um, uh, I think we could uh, model perhaps a little bit more carefully um, in the future. Absolutely. I, 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 there's something, and yeah, we'll come to those kind of long causal uh, chains. And there's something quite attractive about long causal chains that happen very, very quickly. It doesn't mean that they're not long causal chains, but it's just an, a, a kind of testament to the power of the mind that it can get through such a long causal change so very, very quickly and make it seem like just a flash in the pan or something. Um, so onto the methods. This this review, this particular systematic review is a kind of sub uh, review of a larger one. Can you tell us kind of a bit about how that came about and, and why you decided to do uh, like a review within a review? Yeah, so um, this work started as part of um, um, a group of health psychologists um, meeting up at the European Health Psychology um, Society annual conference. I think it was back in 2019, so pre-COVID, and we were all in Croatia. And a group of us then thought that, well, um, there's, um, or the the literature on ecological momentary assessment uh, studies is growing rapidly, and it would probably be quite useful to try to uh, to summarise the state of of the field, um, both in terms of uh, the methods and thinking about um, the study designs in more detail, uh, but also um, thinking a little bit more about these questions about how um, or what what uh, psychological and contextual factors have been assessed uh, in relation to different health behaviours, um, and can we also try to pull these results in meta analyses? So the wider review um, took about two and a half years to um, to conduct. Uh, it was published about six months ago, I think, uh, in Health Psychology Review. And that one focused on five different health behaviours. So smoking cessation, alcohol, um, excessive alcohol consumption, physical activity, dietary behaviour and sexual health behaviours. Um, and then from that, uh, we then thought, well, we we have accumulated this um, very large um, database of studies. So the, that wider review included 633 um, EMA studies. Um, and um, yeah, as part of that thought, well, let's focus in a little bit more on these specific health behaviours um, like smoking cessation and try to... Um, um, then also to conduct meta-analyses. Um, so again, this review has also taken a long time uh, to complete. So sort of um, from the sort of that meeting at the um, uh, health psychology conference, I think it's now been around three years um, since. Um, yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's still pretty quick in my book. Um uh, as part of this, you had to design your own um, kind of quality assessment checklist for ecological momentary assessment studies. Because, I mean, were you surprised that one didn't, or one that suited your purposes didn't already exist? But I, I suppose my main question is kind of what what are the qualities that you look for in a in an EMA study that that make it high quality rather than kind of not that reliable? So it's interesting. Um... Because in sort of this uh, or in relation to this specific methodology, 
Um, there are some reporting guidelines, um, but I suppose going from reporting guidelines to a quality appraisal tool uh, does feel like quite a big step, I suppose, because then you're imposing some value judgments about um, what good practice looks like. Um, so we, well, tried to build on to the existing uh, reporting guidelines um, for EMA studies uh, and then tried to combine it with an existing uh, public health quality appraisal tool. Um, and I think, I mean, th this is an early version um, that's helped us uh, understand a little bit more about the literature, but I think it would require um, further work before this quality appraisal tool could or should be adopted by the wider community. Um, but what we ended up thinking about um, being important quality criteria here um, were around um, sort of the rationale for using an EMA design in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, then we were also thinking that um, what is particularly important in these studies as well is for them to be um, adequately powered, because also in, in these studies, uh, the number of assessments per person in the data set is also what can um, uh, increase the power of these um, analyses, as opposed to necessarily adding more participants. Mm. Um, so we then looked for uh, whether uh, an a priori power analysis had been conducted or not. Um, and then... Um, also uh, very important in these studies is also then, of course, the adherence to the measurement protocol, um, both because it's linked to uh, the power, um, but then also um, if we lack information about what's happening uh, over time, then we would have to impute data in some way or try mm. to predict missingness. So it is quite important that we have complete data. Uh, adherence to the EMA protocol, um, and then, of course, also how um, EMA missingness would be treated, because it would be likely that uh, people would miss assessments. But uh, then, of course, it becomes quite important what sort of assumptions are made about the missingness um, and whether data have been imputed in some way, and if so, how. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess with this particular one, there's a difference between something that's missed because you were in a meeting or missed because you were too busy smoking. I mean, like you need to know that difference. Absolutely. And I think the without uh, getting too sort of nitty gritty about it, uh, I think that the, there's some very interesting work that's being done and to be done in this field about uh, the sort of informativeness of missingness. And we probably can't assume that missing assessments are completely random. They are probably um, either related to the behaviour or to maybe one of our um, important predictors. I, I am full of regret that we don't have time to spend the next 45 minutes talking about missing data. Um, I, I, I feel I must, A, do a separate podcast on that at some point, uh, but B, also move us on to some results. Um, so uh, so looking at the kind of within-person uh, states uh, that you were basing this on, uh, you're also looking at contextual factors, like you say, the availability of cigarettes. Which of those states in these EMA studies um, made a difference to people's lapse um, and or relapse? Yeah, so so I think probably before going into um, uh, the result in more detail, I should say that, of course, 
a bit of a challenge of this work is to make sure that uh, in our meta-analysis that we have a sufficient number of studies uh, that can go into them. Um, so I suppose um, also what uh, authors have chosen to focus on in their studies, which would be related to the theories that we talked about in the beginning, uh, there is all kind of a knock-on effect on uh, sort of what the theories uh, predict, what authors selected to focus on, and then what could go into our meta-analyses. So I think it's important to say that uh, just because uh, these factors were the ones that we could um, focus our results on doesn't mean that then other factors aren't incredibly important for lapse risk. And also um, thinking a little bit about um, idiosyncrasies and that people are very different. So some factors may be very important for a given individual, even though they don't come out as kind of important in these mm. pooled analyses. But saying that, so in our meta-analyses, we were able to sort of group our uh, contextual and psychological factors into three separate meta-analyses. Um, and the first one focused on negative feeling states, uh, which would be things like um, sadness or anger, frustration, stress. Um, and interestingly, um, in this meta-analysis, um, the pooled um, the effect size um, did not come out as kind of significantly associated with lapse risk. Uh, although um, when we did some sensitivity analyses using um, um, some um, other methods, um, the results were then significant. But so it does seem like maybe there is a... Um, um, sort of a, a small uh, positive association between negative feeling states and lapse risk. Those kinds of negative states made it more likely that those participants would lapse to smoking. Yes, exactly. So so when, when uh, people are feeling more stressed uh, than usual for them, um, they would be at, at a small um, but uh, increased risk of, of them smoking a cigarette. Okay, and um, what did you find for the kind of positive within-person um, uh, states? Yes, yeah, so so with regards to um, positive feeling states, um, so uh, feeling playful or um, feeling energetic, mm -hmm. for example, um, in the narrative synthesis of the effect sizes that we couldn't include uh, in the meta-analysis, we did find um, uh, a positive relationship between positive feeling states um, and the risk of lapsing. Uh, so it seems like maybe um, heightened uh, affect, whether or not it's uh, positive or negative, um, compared with a person's kind of more typical state, uh, it could be associated with an increased risk of, of lapsing. So, so basically, whatever you do, if it makes you feel anything, it's probably going to heighten your, your chance of lapse at that point. Yes, but I think we we do need to be a little bit um, careful in sort of our interpretation of these findings as well. Um, and also, um, and we do go into that uh, in quite some depth in the uh, discussion section. Um, and one of them is, well, more related to kind of the meta-analysis that we were able to perform on the negative feeling states, uh, because... It might be somewhat surprising, um, first of all, that kind of the um, original analysis, it didn't come out as kind of significantly mm. associated uh, with lapse risk. Uh, but then also when kind of 
digging in a little bit further into some of the reasons why we might have seen that is that, well, first of all, um, when we're conducting these analyses and kind of um, pooling all of these studies together, we haven't quite um, looked in depth into what kinds of feeling states um, um, were assessed in these studies. I mean, we did look at it, but we haven't separate, we weren't able to separate them out kind of into specific analyses. So it might be the case, and also this comes back to our our theories, right, Um, that uh, perhaps um, negative feeling states, but only those that are uh, linked to kind of uh, high arousal states Mm -hmm. as opposed to low arousal negative affects. So maybe more uh, anger, frustration, as opposed to sadness, feeling lethargic, that those uh, states might be um, more linked to lapse risk. And there might be something similar going on uh, with positive affects as well. Mm. So b- being able to to discriminate those a little bit further and tease them apart, I think would be very interesting in, in future work. Uh, but then also, I think um, uh, what I kind of um, hinted to as well is that in these types of analyses, when we're using uh, multi-level modelling, it means that in order for uh, an effect to come out as kind of significant at the within-person level, it does need to hold true for uh, many people in the data set. And because people are different, uh, it might, of course, be the case that, well, for some people, um, there is a really specific kind of link between some uh, aspect of negative affect, whereas for other people, that doesn't hold true. And... um, uh, so those are just a couple of things that might uh, sort of muddle these analyses. It, it raises a lot of questions, um, which is which is fantastic. It's great to think about. Um, now you mentioned it there at the beginning when you talked about the meta-analysis about um, the definitions of lapse and relapse. This was actually one of your aims for the study was to kind of pull together all the different definitions of lapse and relapse that have been used in EMA studies. Um, and like you can see that they, they ranged so much that actually comparing them must have been quite difficult. Were you surprised at the range of definitions that were used? And was that a problem for you? Yeah, so I think th- this or well, these types of studies actually open up um, uh, possibilities for us to think more carefully about these very important uh, notions in addiction science. Um, and I think going back to uh, previous ways of uh, measuring uh, lapse and relapse, particularly in clinical trials, um, it's, uh, th- it makes perfect sense that when assessing uh, the number of lapses retrospectively at a follow-up measurement, it might make sense to, to try to impose some sort of cutoff. So, for example... Uh, smoking five cigarettes uh, over the course of the quit attempt, for example, um, or less than five cigarettes. But I think with these methods, when we have more, um, or gives us more granular insight into the uh, behavioral process, um, I think that that um, leads to us being able to, to ask these questions in more detail and think really carefully about what actually distinguishes a lapse from uh, full-on relapse when has the person gone back to smoking as regular and sort of would need to instigate a new quit attempt um, and what we found here is that um, 
the uh, definitions of, of laps and also the um, measurements used were very consistent across these included studies. But uh, on the uh, other hand, definition, definitions of relapse differed um, uh, quite a lot. And also a lot of them were, uh, I would say, quite imprecise. So, for example, uh, going back to smoking as usual or uh, going back to smoking regularly. Um, some of those definitions were more sort of uh, threshold definitions as we categorise them. Um, that would say, for example, um, seven days of smoking consecutively. Um, but I think this raises questions as to uh, could we perhaps find a more data-driven way of categorizing these different states uh, and think about um, when in the process is it perhaps too late to try to um, to sort of rescue somebody from going back to, to full-on relapse? Um, and when is there still sort of um, opportunity um, for change? Um, I mean, again, another subject that could uh, that could take us all day. Um, but there's two, two, a couple more things that I do want to cover. Um, one was, uh, I, again, one of your outcomes was to see how many of these studies had registered with uh, a kind of open science framework, and, and you found one. Um, why is that important for, in particular, for EMA studies? So uh, as a strong advocate of open science principles in general, I think there is um, a strong argument to be had that um, sharing um, materials and data and codes will allow for increased uh, transparency and reproducibility. Um, but then also I think there is the really important aspect of um of team science and uh, facilitating other teams building on to what is already known and then also perhaps uh, conducting additional analyses. Um, and also what's, I think, specific to these kinds of studies is that they are quite burdensome for participants or probably um, at least more burdensome than, um, than responding to a measurement at baseline or measurement battery at baseline and then follow up. Um, so uh, given that uh, it does take quite a bit of effort uh, for everyone involved uh, to produce these data sets, uh, I think there is additional kind of um, uh, imperatives for, for scientists to, um, to set these things up so that um, data can be shared. And then just to add as well, uh, one additional point is that given that the statistical modelling here becomes increasingly complex, so we try to summarise some of the aspects of the models, so uh, whether or not um, different covariates had been included, how they accounted for time in these models, uh, whether they incorporated random intercepts, random slopes, and particularly when it comes to pooling results, uh, it's very important to, to have this information about the models because it can influence the, um, the pooled estimates. So uh, also in terms of the uh, analysis um, protocols and plans, that's also, I think, very important for researchers to pre-specify um, what they are planning to do and then for um, others to be able to compare whether any differences between what was planned and how that was executed and then why. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, you make a reference to to that in the uh, in the review about a change to your protocol that went through, which uh, I, I enjoy reading that when I see it in papers. I think that's it's a it's a sign of someone who's being very open and transparent about what's happened. Yeah, and I think I mean because well, specifically this was one of our um, key research questions, and I think it is uh, important, of course, to try to practice what you preach. So, yeah. um, so I think we very much try to make this as open and transparent as possible, and would also encourage other people to to reuse this data set. I'm sure there's um, other interesting analyses that can be uh, conducted. Um. And just to finish off looking uh, slightly to the future, um, you, you mentioned the COMPLAPS, all capital letters, C-O-M-P-L-A-P-S-E uh, study, um, about uh, a potential to unpick those long causal chains between feelings, contexts and behaviours and, and lapse and relapse. Um, what's, what is the COMPLAPS study and, and, and how is that working? Yeah, so this is... Um... Um, a fellowship um, project uh, that I'm currently working on um, at the University of California, San Diego and Tampere University. And this work is really trying to uh, incorporate computational uh, and dynamic systems modeling um, into this kind of work. And um, I think as I as I highlighted a little bit in the beginning is to uh, that it's it's very interesting to be able to think about these different causal chains, for example. So it, might it be that um, a person is encountering a cue in their environment that triggers a craving, cigarettes are already available, which then uh, leads to a heightened risk of, of lapsing? Or is there perhaps other pathways in that um, the person is experiencing um, a negative feeling state and then... Uh, which causes them to seek out cigarettes and perhaps traveling um, to purchase cigarettes. Um, and uh, the reason for using uh, computational modeling or dynamic systems modeling, as opposed to perhaps these uh, multi-level statistical models, uh, I think there are a few uh, key benefits of using uh, this more sort of mathematical or generative um, type of modeling. Um, and the first one, I think, is sort of the ability to account more for uh, precise causal pathways. Um, and then um, uh, the the other reason for using these types of models is also that uh, a lot of the statistical models we have available, they're not very good at accounting for um, aspects of health behaviours um, which are um, displaying uh, characteristics of complex systems. So, for example, things like feedback loops, um, a lot of our statistical models wouldn't necessarily be able to account for that. Um, and then also, for example, uh, the system, in my case, it would be a person that I'm trying to, uh, to model as a system, uh, might also uh, shift over time from more or less stable states. So we might think of uh, coming back to the notion of uh, abstinence versus uh, smoking as usual or uh, the notion of relapse uh, that we might be able to model um, th this kind of critical shift so are there things that kind of build up over time through feedback loops that are then uh, sort of pushing the person over to a more stable state of abstinence or um, maybe going back to smoking as usual so I think um, 
these types uh, of um, models, uh, they can really be beneficial in terms of uh, helping us to to push our uh, causal thinking and our theoretical thinking. And then hopefully also a third benefit is that these types of computational models can then be incorporated into just-in-time adaptive interventions uh, through control systems engineering principles. So hopefully uh, the sort of end result is also uh, a more kind of uh, dynamically tailored intervention that can really um, understand um, uh, what intervention to provide to a person at what time. Fantastic. Um, it, 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 it sounds... Sounds like a lot of work. Uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, there's ecological momentary assessment and lots of uh, just-in-time adaptive interventions, modelling people using complex computational uh, uh, methods. Uh, Dr. Olga Persky, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Rob. It was a pleasure.